0: Now, we've been going through 1 Timothy for several weeks, and we're going to continue to go through it. And again, as as a matter of uh, just renewal or revision, or not revision, rather, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Somebody? Thank you, review. Thank you very much. As a matter, when you get older, you'll forget words too. As a matter for review, we're going to start again with where we were, with Paul, who is in prison, much older than Timothy who purposely sought out this young man in order to mentor him and instruct him and be patient with him as the next generation, he places him in leadership in a church that's a really good church. Don't get me wrong. Ephesus is a, a good church. If you read about how the church at Ephesus got started in 18 and 19 Acts, I mean, it, it, it changed the whole community. It, it started a riot. They, they presented the gospel in such a powerful way, and so many people got saved that it changed the whole economy of the region. So it's a good church, But even in good churches, and in fact, mostly in good churches, the adversary is going to work doubly hard to bring it down. And that's what's happening. And Paul puts, of all people, young Timothy. You'd think, wouldn't he go get a Barnabas or some mature person? But God puts a a young man in there, and Paul works with him. And, And so Timothy is discouraged. There's fighting, there's quarreling, there's false teaching, there's all kinds of problems. There's people who don't respect his leadership. People are talking about him, and he wants to leave. And the purpose of this letter really is for, for Paul to encourage Timothy to stay, to tell him why he needs to stay, and then to tell him what he needs to do when he stays, all right? So we're going to get to the really practical things here in this passage of 1 of, uh, Timothy chapter 2. It's a letter from Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. And verse 5, so let's begin with verse 5. All throughout 1 Timothy, well, all throughout all of Paul's writings, all right? But all throughout 1 Timothy, it's the gospel, it's the gospel, it's the gospel, it's the gospel. And the reason for that is churches forget that. We know it. I mean, we sort of say, yeah, it's the gospel, and we put it up there, and then we go on and we act like whatever we want to do is more important than the gospel. And Paul is always bringing Timothy and the other folks in the church back to say, this is why I'm an apostle. This is why we do what we do. This is why we're here on the earth. This as, as, uh, is, is the most, absolute, most important thing to remember. And he says, for there is one God, read along with me, there is one God or one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all A testimony in proper time. I mean, this is what we're all about. It's not about listen, it's not about you, it's not about me, it's not about my family, it's not about what the church does for me. We've created a whole culture in North America of church consumers, all right? And we just we try to we try to try to reach out to people based on what 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 they might want in a church. And and we got to be careful. We want to reach out to people and, and help them grow in Christ and become like Christ and be obedient to Christ and not try to pander to their own personal agendas and their own personal needs. And Paul says, this is why we're here. There is just one God, one mediator between God and man, humanity, and that is Christ Jesus. And remember, he gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony in proper time. And then Paul says, again, he reminds them, for this I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I'm telling the truth. <laughs> I'm not lying. I, just, I love this as he's writing it. You're like, this is really what matters. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, what's imp- you and I read that today in 21st century uh, Cass County. is like a teacher of the Gentiles. Whatever, okay. No, no, no. He's writing primarily to Hebrews who have spent, listen, spent their entire existence separating himself from Gentiles. We don't talk to them. We don't encounter them. We don't enter their house. We don't touch them. We certainly don't let them talk to our kids or take care of our kids. And Paul is saying, you're going to have to get over that because the gospel is for everybody. What Paul is talking about here is racism between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, God separated the Jewish people from the Gentiles for a reason, right? I mean, you know that. He separated them so that they would be a separate people through which he would bring his son Jesus to bless the whole world. But even in separating them, even in the Old Testament, you have the story of Jonah, right, who goes to Nineveh. God carried, you have the story of Ruth right? Even in the Old Testament, God cares for the whole world. He just wants his people to remain true to him. But they have taken that to mean that they are superior to the Gentiles. They don't want to interact with the Gentiles. Paul says the gospel is for everybody, even people that you find you're uncomfortable with and you don't like. So Paul makes it clear, I'm an apostle to those people that you would rather never encounter in your whole life so we have to be cautious as we realize the gospel is not just for people who are like us, who look like us, who talk like us, who act like us. The gospel is for the whole world. Remember a couple of weeks ago when Paul's dealing with Timothy, he says, here's, here's how you begin to, to deal with all these problems in the church. You focus on the whole world. You pray big, expansive prayers that the gospel will be known to the whole world. And as I said, here's this little church in the middle of Turkey in the first century Praying that the gospel be heard all around the world. I want to tell you what, their prayers were answered. It's 2,000 years later, and the gospel is being shared on every continent of the globe today. And there are more people following Christ today than ever in history. Pray big prayers. It's all about the gospel. When When we forget that it's about the gospel, we make it about us. And we focus on ourselves, and I'll I'll talk about that in a moment. But he says, I'm I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. And then he moves into this. All right, so what are we going to do about this? The church has some problems. It has some difficulties. People are quarreling. They're fighting. They're making a shipwreck of their own faith by teaching false doctrine. So what are we going to do? Verse 8, therefore, I want the men. He begins with the men. He begins with the men. I want to tell you as i work with churches all across north america and i work with churches that are about to die or churches that are about to close often what's lacking in those churches well let me just say i've yet to find an exception i'm sure there's one out there but my team and i at the north american mission boards we work with hundreds of churches across north america that are about to close i've yet to find an exception we've yet to find an exception where a church is about to close, but it has an abundance of young, committed, Christian young men between the ages of 18 and 40. I've never been to a dying church in my life where I sit down with them and say, here's the problem, Mark. We just got too many young men who love Jesus between the ages of 18 and 40. I don't know what we're going to do about that. That's not the case. Generally, what happens, that whole generation is gone. And what's remaining are men my age, thank goodness for us, but we're not young and Ladies, where is, where, is the, where, is, where is that main engine that God seems to always use around the globe? I mentioned this morning that God's doing some amazing things all around the globe. And I've said many times since I've been here, because this, this, this passage of, of, of First Timothy really lends itself to this truth. The great movements of God never started in all of Christendom with men my age, they've always started with men much, much younger. It pleases God to, to use young men to do those amazing, bold things. And men my age, it's our job to love them and champion them and bring wisdom and care and, and, and understanding. And as I said yesterday in a, in a thing I posted, it's, it's our job to, to spend our last strength holding up their arms and our last breath cheering them on. Not pushing them aside and criticizing the way they lead. And so Paul begins with men. It's, it's the, and he says, he starts with them. And he says, the men in the church. I want men in every place to pray. That's <laughs> where it starts. To pray. And then, in that sentence, he doesn't end the sentence there. He says, to pray... Lifting up holy hands without argument. Now, there's nothing nothing particularly powerful about the position physically you are in when you pray. Uh, Jesus, when he gave his model prayer, didn't tell us how to stand, how to sit, how to hold our hands. We don't see that throughout the New Testament. But Paul here is making a specific point. I'm not just wanting men to go through the routine of rote prayers. You know, the reality is, I want to be cautious here and gracious, but I want to be truthful. I've grown up in church. My dad was a pastor. I was born on a Wednesday morning. My dad left the hospital that evening and went and did prayer meeting that night. And then I was in church a week later, and I've been in church all my life. And I'll talk about that again in a minute. But having grown up in church and been in church all of my life and and been in countless services on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and revivals, I, I honestly know that many times when someone stands up to pray publicly on Sunday morning, oftentimes we can almost quote the prayer before they give it. Oftentimes the prayer is just sort of simplistic phrases that we've heard all of our life put together. Thank you for bringing us here today. Watch over us, protect us. Be with our preacher as he preaches. As I said, if God's not with your preacher, get a new preacher. You know, join us here today. God's already here, you know. I mean, a couple of weeks ago I was in Dallas and we were at the Southern Baptist Convention and we had a a pre-meeting for men and women who were working in in trying to reclaim dying churches. And I had a a young man that I really respect. His name is Andy Davis. He pastors First Baptist Church of Durham, North Carolina. He's a great guy, you need to follow him on, on social media, listen to his sermons, he's powerful, he's great. And he was leading a conference for us, and he, he opened his sermon in prayer, his conference in prayer. And I'm sitting there with everybody else thinking, okay, he's going to open in prayer and start teaching. I want to tell you something, his prayer, listen, was his teaching. I'm not, I'm not going to try to quote it for you, but he just began by just thanking God, Salvation in Christ, and then saying, "We have. I have no idea." He said, "I have no idea the 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 power of what that means. I have no idea what you're doing, even at this moment in heaven, to continue to save me and to keep me. And this side of heaven, I will never fully grasp the magnitude of the work of Jesus, even as I speak right now, to keep me from hell and secure me in heaven." Now that's the kind of man I want to hear pray. All right. We say all the time. I work with this again with churches all the time, and bless their heart, pastors come up to us and say, you know, I, our people just don't pray. We just can't. They just don't come to prayer meetings. They don't pray. Can't get them to pray. It's not. And what? How long you been the pastor there? I've been there twelve years. In those twelve years. Who do you think they've heard pray more than anybody else in public? So what about the way that I, as a preacher, pray in public, make anybody think what I'm doing is important and powerful, and I can't wait to go home to do that? Paul says here, I want men to pray, but not just rote sentences, not just getting together and saying, you know, Lord, uh, be with us. He says, lifting up holy hands. What's that mean? I've got to repent. I've I've got to be clean before the Lord. Holy hands means I've got to, I've got to, if prayer begins with me, I've got to repent of my sin. And repentance isn't something we avoid. Repentance is a fountain we run to. It's a sweet and wonderful experience. And Paul says, I need men to pray, but not just say words and sentences. They've heard that all their life. They would go to the temple and hear Pharisees, quote, lengthy prayers. I'm not talking about that. He said, I'm talking about men who will lift up holy hands. That means men who have repented of their sin, men who acknowledge their transgressions against God, against one another, against their family, men who are broken over what, what they've done, men who desire holiness, men who want to literally reach out and embrace the gospel. Men who passionately want to pursue holiness. That's what he says. You get a church full of men who are willing to confess their sins to one another and admit their guilt to one another and desire holiness, you got a church that can begin to change. Look, having grown up in church, I saw this all my life. I saw men when they were in the church with my dad pastoring, men who were in the church that could could stand up and give announcements, could stand up and read, could teach Sunday school, could lead organizations, could, could pray publicly. And in church, they seemed like really honorable, godly men. But even as a young child, I remember I would maybe go spend time with them because maybe they had kids my age and I would spend a weekend at their house, or I would go to to the lake with them for a a few days in the summer, and we'd camp out and fish. And I I would sometimes see these men who in church appeared so godly and so, so holy in their home. I would see them and hear them just cut their wife to the core with some really mean, harsh language. I would hear them speak really harshly to their kids in in anger and bitterness. I would hear them, even in traffic, I remember, you know, just, just almost cursing, probably were if I, the preacher's kid, wasn't in the car, almost cursing about people who were cutting them off. And even as a child, I remember thinking there's a disconnect there. And what Paul is saying here is we don't need men who act one way in church and another way the rest of their life. We need men who can come before God with holy hands, clean, repentant. And it's hard to live a holy life. We'll talk about that in a minute. But our prayer, in order to be effectual, has to begin with prayer of repentance, a prayer of grieving over our sin. When I went to Warnell Road Baptist Church, it was, it was a hot mess. There were some good people there, but it was a real mess. And, and after three years of my hard labor, it was still a mess. And he didn't begin to turn around until God brought a young man from India who was a new Christian named Kumar. And Kumar came to me and said, I want to pray with you on Thursday nights late. He'd go home and put his family to bed. And so 10 o'clock on Thursday nights, I, I'd meet Kumar there in the church. We'd go in the sanctuary, sit on the front pew. Just he and I in this big, huge sanctuary. And I remember the first night I met with this young Christian man. He said to me tonight, he said, I don't want to pray for the church. I don't want to pray for all the problems we have. He said, I want you and I to pray for ourselves that we would desire to be like Jesus and we would desire to be holy. And that changed my life and that began to change the life of the church. As, as we added one man and another man, and pretty soon four or five of us would pray, and we prayed not weekly, not again. We prayed not for other people. We prayed for ourselves, and we repented of sin to each other, and we confessed our sin to each other, and we truly wanted to lift up holy hands. And Paul describes it a little bit more. Listen to what he says. I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. guys, we're pretty competitive and we like to be right, <laughs> and we like to win, and we think our opinion matters and what Paul is saying here is there you men in your, in this church you just you just you're angry, you're argumentative and and the world sees that, and what's at stake is the gospel. Remember, Paul is talking earlier in this passage about why we're here. It's because of the gospel, and our, our testimony relies on how the world sees us relate to one another. And if we're argumentative, and if we're angry with one another, and if we're argumentative and we're angry with our spouses, if we're argumentative and we're angry with people we work with, if we're argumentatory and even angry with enemies we have and people who don't like us, it doesn't say anything about the gospel that's in us. It says everything about our old, sinful nature. So Paul says, you've got to put that away. And the way you put that away is to repent of it and to seek to be holy like Christ and to follow Him. It's not a matter of just saying prayers. It's not a matter of just attending church. We need men who repent of their sins. We need men who who don't have to win every argument. We need men who don't have to be able to tell everybody what to do. We need men who are humble servants, acknowledging their need of a Savior, acknowledging how sinful they are without Christ redeeming them. My father was a great man who could pray amazing prayers. In the last years of his life, he was quite ill with congestive heart failure and many other things and he my mother had already passed away and we would bring he he would we would bring him to warnell to church and and uh, as much as i could we would get him up on the on the platform it took a while usually a couple of young elders to help me but we i wanted him up here and he would get up here and he would hold the pulpit and when he began to pray i mean the spirit of god moved across that room and I remember it was a, the last time he ever did that was a Father's Day, just a few months before he passed away. And I had all the young dads, all the dads who had children around the age of three or something like that, I had them all come and stand at the front. And it was cross line there. And my dad stood up there. And I, I wanted my dad to pray for these young, these young dads, most of them in their 20s. And here's my dad, close to 90. And just a few months from heaven. And really the last time he ever did anything in public in a worship service. And I remember he stood there and he, he held the pulpit. And I, 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 remember, I remember distinctly the very first words out of his mouth. And they were, they, were, they were, these words were not hollow. They were not something that was trite that he just repeated all of his life. They were as though he was the most broken man I've ever heard in my life. A man who'd pastored for 60 years. A man, listen, I'll be honest with you. A man that I never in my life heard ever say a swear word in my whole life. And I lived with him. A man who never made a leering comment about a woman in my whole life. He stood there. The first words out of his mouth were, Jesus, Jesus. I can't get over how you sought me and found me a wicked sinner and how you saved me and cleaned me up. And he just went from there. And all these men just began to cry. You couldn't help it. Here's the man who doesn't get over the gospel. Here's the man who realizes that, 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 that it's, it's the power of Christ that has redeemed me and saved me, and I have nothing to be boastful about. I have nothing to be proud about. I have everything to be grateful for. It's that attitude that Paul's talking about here. We need men who aren't argumentative, who don't want to always be on top, who don't always want to have the last word, who don't always want to be right, who don't always want to be heard. We need men who are willing to lift holy hands. They need to confess their sins, repent of their sins, and, and, and understand the importance of that and desire holiness and, and pray that way. Don't we all want to be part of a church like that? I mean, the world sees men arguing and bickering and fighting and all the time. And you come into the church to see a place where men love one another, care for one another, and are vulnerable with one another, and are willing to acknowledge my struggles with one another. Verse 9. Yeah, it gets a little interesting here, doesn't it? That's why I kept it up there. Some of you are already ahead of me. And it begins with the men. It begins with your heart. And it begins with your attitude. Let me, just let me. I've got so many thoughts in my mind. The many times I've been in churches where there's, there's been some disagreement and argument, and I've heard guys say, "Well, let's just pray over this," and and they'll pray over it, but they've not really repented of them of their of their. Of their arrogance or their of their anger. They've not repented to one another. They just sort of and, and Paul's talking about that's not the kind of prayer we're talking about. We're talking about where you really repent and you have holy hands and you can stand before God clean. And then he says, also the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, and not with braided hair. I think does that say braided hair or hairstyle? Elaborate hairstyles. King James probably says braided hair. Gold, pearls, or expensive apparel. All right. Clearly, he's not suggesting that if you just don't wear gold or pearls or braid your hair, you're going to get to heaven. Nor is he suggesting if you wear gold or pearls or braid your hair, you're going to go to hell. That's nobody's talking about. He's talking about the first century. First of all, listen carefully. He's talking about men and how men are perceived in the culture in which they live. Are they bossy, arrogant, argumentative? You can imagine, listen, you can imagine men in a marketplace, right, in the first century. And they're arguing politics. They're arguing even sports, because they had sports in those days. They're arguing John Deere or international. They're arguing, and so the world sees men always vying for power, vying for attention, arguing men who put their wives down, men who are... And Paul's saying, no, we've got to have men who are willing to lift up holy hands, who are willing to not be argumentative. The world sees something different in these men because it doesn't matter what we say if our life doesn't exhibit that. Does that make sense? That's what he's talking about. And so he moves to women, and in that culture, the way some women dress, they acknowledged that they had low morality. And Paul is saying, look, it may be in fashion, and it may, but if you dress in these ways, in this, in this culture, you're, you're acknowledging something about yourself that's not godly. You can, you can braid your hair. You can braid your grandmother's hair. And nobody in Peculiar or Pleasant Hill or Bolivar or Kansas City is going to look at your grandmother with braided hair and go, Okay, there's something really unusual about that lady. And I think she's pretty ungodly, don't you? You're not going to say that in 21st century America. That's not the point. Get it? And if you wear a gold necklace or a fake gold necklace, if you wear pearls, real, cultured, or plastic, Nobody's going to look at you as a woman and say, oh, we know what she's about. That's not going to happen. He's not talking about there's something wrong with braiding your hair or wearing gold. He's talking about the way the culture perceives you. And this is, listen, this is really, really, really important. The culture 2,000 years ago, the culture today values women based on their sexual appeal. Paul is saying, you're not valued on the way you look. You're valued on what Christ has done for you. You belong to him. It's not about your appearance. And the pressure on women, the pressure on girls to look a certain way, to be accepted in the culture is powerful. Paul's not saying you shouldn't be attractive, you shouldn't take care of you. Not at all. But you can't find your worth in the way people look at you and the way you dress that you, you, you you're you're far more than that and basically he's saying for these women who were dressing that way in order to draw attention to themselves in order they, they were basically saying that, that the gospel's not enough I need that, but I also need the affirmation and it's still a difficult thing we live in. My wife and I were blessed to have two sons and I don't want to say no daughters, but I, I have the greatest respect for those of you raising daughters these days and how you deal with the modesty and the culture and balance all of that. It's not easy. And the answer is not to become like the Amish. I, I, I'm from North Missouri, from Jamesport, and I go up there a lot. And, you know the answer is not to dress in a way that you stand out and you look really different. That's not the answer. The answer is to dress in such a way that you don't draw attention to anything, and and that that you acknowledge that you're you're comfortable in who you are because God made you this way, and 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 you're not looking for affirmation outside of the gospel. And you're you're not you're not saying I, I need attention. I, I need this. There's don't let me I just. If we're trying to communicate the gospel, wouldn't the world love to have a place where they could come in and men do not argue and fuss and fight, but truly love and care for one another and are humble with one another? And wouldn't they like to have a place where women are accepted just like they are? They don't have to be something they're not. And they're not looked at as sexual objects, but they're looked at as daughters and sisters and mothers and children of God that we love and that we care for. That's the picture of the family of the church. And Paul is saying, we're a family together. And that family represents the gospel that has transformed us. And if we don't behave that way, we lose our witness. And we become like the world. And there's always this pull on us. Paul Paul said it this way. He said, daily I have to beat my life into submission or I'm not worthy of the gospel I preached." Even Paul understood this side of heaven. I am not yet fully what I will be. And I still wrestle with my sinful nature. And if I don't don't fight it and wrestle with it, it will eventually, I will give into it and I will become argumentative. And by the way, It ain't just women who can freak out about how they look. Amen? I mean, men can find their value. Fortunately, God has freed me from that concern. But men can find, that was a joke, men can find their value in how they look and how the world perceives them as well. And certainly women can be argumentative as well. Paul here is talking about in the context of this church, they had men who were just, argumentative and bossy, and people in the community knew that. had women who were saying that Jesus was enough, but yet they were dressing in a way that tried to draw attention to themselves, like the culture did. And Paul said, all of that sends a very wrong message about the power of the gospel. And that's what he's talking about here. Verse 10, but with good works as is proper for women who profess to worship God. Now, you see the other verse there. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. you got to come back next week if you want that one. Because we don't have time. And I'm not ready. <laughs> so we'll do that next week. I am ready, but we don't have time. The next few verses are really critically important. But here, I, I just I want you to focus on that this morning. And on, on, on the issue in the church needs to be dealt with from the people within the church. And you need to be deal, dealing with it in terms of understanding the gospel. That because of what Christ has done for me, I, I am so generous with everything else. I'm so forgiving of other people. I don't need the attention of people. I don't need affirmation outside of what Jesus has done for me. The church needs to be a different place. People need to look at the people who are followers of Jesus and say, you know what? They don't fuss and they don't fight and they don't have to always be right. And, and they don't, they, they're not overly concerned about how people view them. We, we don't, we live in a culture that we, we are so whacked out about how we're seen by the world and to be in a place where we say, you know what, Jesus made me, he loves me, he's going to take me home. And one day, this body may not be perfect, but one day I'm going to have a perfect body. And it's going to be in heaven. And I'm going to, be. it's just to understand the eternal nature with which we've been created. And he says that with good works, this is proper for women who profess worship God look story in the New Testament that you know very well between Mary and Martha two women Martha wasn't concerned about probably the way she looked I don't think she was braiding her hair and doing all that but Martha was concerned wasn't she about how her house looked about how her guests were being served there's nothing wrong with caring about how your physique you shouldn't you should look clean and well put together and your house you should care that it looks appropriate but what Martha had done in that story i mean think about it for a minute jesus God incarnate, the creator of the entire universe, the Alpha and the Omega, is seated in her living room, and all she can think about is all the chores that need to be done and how people are going to perceive this and how she's the one left to do all the work. She has no joy. She has no happiness. She has no satisfaction. She's angry. She's bitter. She's contentious because, listen, this is, this is what I'm trying to say, and I'm struggling with it. When your eyes are on yourself, you're never happy. And if you've got to be right as a man or a woman and you've got to be argumentative, your eyes are on yourself. And if you're overly concerned with the way you look and the way people, your eyes are on yourself. And Martha's eyes were on herself. All she could think about was, I've got to do this. I've got, nobody's helping me. Mary especially is not helping me. Why is all this on me? And finally, it reaches a point in Martha's life where she does something really amazing I think I shared this with you before she walks in in front of a rabbi let alone God it's a rabbi a woman never interrupted a rabbi and she interrupts him while he's teaching and she says Lord don't you care listen if that ever comes into your mind Jesus didn't put it there and why would she say Lord don't you care if she didn't Really believed with every fiber of her being she was right and everybody else was wrong. She believed everybody else was wrong. And she really believed Jesus would stop what he was saying and go, Wow, how did we miss this? Everybody, give it up for Martha. And Mary, you are, Mary, what are you doing here, Mary? Look at all the work to be done in that kitchen. Go help your sister. M- Martha really believed Jesus would say that. Listen to me. Just because you think you're right with all your, 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 Passion doesn't mean you're right. And then he turns to her and he said, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things. But Mary, Mary understands the one thing that will never be taken from her. Here's what I'm trying to say about this text. Martha was looking for her worth in something other than Jesus. And you'll never find it, and you'll be unhappy, and you'll make everybody unhappy around you. Mary found her worth in being at the feet of Jesus, and she was content. We want churches filled with people who find their worth at the feet of Jesus and are content. And if we do that, the world notices we're different. So Paul is saying here, Timothy, you've got to have men who will pray with holy hands, who will confess their sins, who quit being argumentative. You've got to have women who, who, who the gospel in Jesus is enough and they're not out there trying to find their validation somewhere else. That's where it begins. It begins with the gospel. Is Jesus enough? He is, but is he enough for you? Are you looking for something other than that? Because nothing other than that will satisfy you. Heavenly Father, these are somewhat challenging words to read. It's important for your people to go through every verse and see these texts. There's some men and women in this room who are argumentative who just like to have the last word, who just kind of have to be right all the time. Lord, help us realize that that's not godly. There's some of us men and women in this room that care a lot about what people think about us. We may not braid our hair and wear gold jewelry, but we sure want our cars to be something people are impressed with, or our homes. Lord, help us realize we don't need any of that, that we are valued greatly because you sought us out as a sinner and you gave your life for us, And every moment of every second for all eternity, you redeem us, and that's all we need. Father, if we can find our joy in you, then we'll be patient with one another. We'll be peaceful with one another. We'll be graceful with one another. And the world will speak well of the gospel because of how they see it in our lives. Forgive us, Father, when we've tried to find our worth in our power, our agendas, our, our Beauty, our money, our position. That's what the world does. And there's no joy in that. But Father, may we find our joy as Paul did in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.